Hello, and welcome to the Green Tea Party, where we discuss conservative solutions to environmental problems. I'm Hannah Rogers. My name is Zach Torpy. And I'm Katie Zakreski. Together, we'll guide you through complex issues and provide strategies to address them, all while remaining faithful to our conservative values. Trust me, it'll be a good time. Yeah, it's a party, so grab your mugs and we'll pour the tea. Okay, so on today's show, we have the privilege of interviewing Jack Fisher. He's a student at George Washington University. Hello, everybody. My name is Jack. As Hannah said, I and th- first of all, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. It was my organization, GW, George Washington University College Republicans, was thrilled to be asked to contribute to this show. So I'm really happy to be here. That kind of leads me into how I got there. I'm the director of political affairs for GW College Republicans. I won the election in the spring of last year. And currently, I'm a senior studying finance and political science. Hopefully, we'll figure out where the world takes me before I graduate, but I'm not sure about that. And <laughs> I think I've got it lined up, but like, I don't want to like jinx myself. I'm from upstate New York. I grew up in the Finger Lakes area, in case any of you are familiar with that neck of the woods. Uh, it was a great place to grow up. And then I came to GW and yeah, I'll probably end up staying in the DC area for a couple of years. I'm sure your campus is beautiful because it is in DC and they all look like they are their own like complex architectural yeah. prowess. Yeah. Well, so. What's so interesting about GW because a lot of people compare it to like the campus style of NYU. It's a city campus. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, there's a lot of city campuses, but I think what makes ours unique is that it really is concentrated within a few blocks, whereas NYU is scattered throughout Manhattan. So I really like that we have like enough concentration of land area in DC and the Foggy Bottom area so we can actually have a campus-like feel. But I've always been jealous of the people at Georgetown or <laughs> anyone else. I grew up in upstate New York. We had St. John Fisher, Nazareth, Syracuse, just incredible campuses. I've always been a little jealous of those. <laughs> well, they're all gorgeous. I know every time I've been up there, I'm like, man, we need to take a page from y'all's book and bring it down here and see if we can revamp some of our architecture on our colleges. Yeah, I'm sure it's gorgeous. What university did you go to? I went to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. I'm from Arkansas. Nice. Zach grew up in New York, right? Yep, yep. I went to Stony Brook University. I grew up uh, like 40 minutes north of the city. No kidding. My younger brother's there right now. Yeah? Yeah, he's a sophomore studying biology. He's probably going to go the pre-med route. He loves Stony Brook. It's like not it's not even that far away from New York City. I didn't realize how close Long Island was to an hour train ride. Tell us how you got introduced to environmentalism. Like, what was your introduction to this whole realm of taking care of the planet? One thing that really resonates with me when I think of the environment is not climate change, carbon emissions, all that stuff. I'm not saying there isn't a place for it, but growing up in upstate New York, where you're surrounded by a ton of nature, I mean, it really is a beautiful place to grow up. You care about the water. And you care about the land and you care about the wildlife. Well, I did grow up with a lot of hunters. There's other precious wildlife there besides deer. It really is a part of the country that is kind of untouched by developers in New York. I mean, you go into New York City. I mean, they constantly are. It's it's so hypocritical because these are the people who are complaining about climate change left and right. But it is their area. It is New York City. It is their land that is polluted to hell and back because they have a million buildings built sky high. And don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful city. 
when you have more industry, more and more every year, you have more and more energy, you have more and more heat. And as a result, the temperatures go up, the, the pollution goes up. You know, we kind of want New York City to stay away <laughs> because we don't want to deal with those problems. The Finger Lakes are beautiful. The nature in upstate New York is beautiful. It's become relatively normal, especially, especially when you're young, to live on the land, not with it. And that's one thing I really try to emphasize when I think about environmentalism. I don't know if I'm not all that big on all a, a ton of policies. I'm more of just about conservation and a more old school approach. So that's kind of where I stand on environmentalism. Okay. So tell me more about what kind of a conservative you are. Like, how did you get into conservatism? Coming into college, I was a registered Republican, but I was one of those people who was going to like, you know, I'm going to change it from within. I had no idea what I was saying. I think because everybody in my high school was a Republican. And I was really just quite resentful of the rhetoric that I was that I was hearing from the Trump administration and from Trump himself. And then it didn't take me till really I got out of high school and started being in the liberal belly of the beast in DC, seeing that people take those words and really blow them out of proportion. And then you it opens your eyes to how come the media is only showing you 15 seconds of the president's speech? It's the president of the United States. You're telling me we can't show the full <laughs> 10 minutes, mm-hmm. the full interaction. That's kind of bizarre. And especially being in this liberal place, you really start to see who runs the Democratic Party. So my eyes are really open to all of that because, you know, I grew up with a lot of Democrats, not, not a lot, more Republicans than Democrats, but the Democrats, I was always finding myself defending because they were serious people. But the people at GW, their policies did resonate with me, but they resonated the wrong way. And, and I just had a complete rejection of it. I started to do research every night, not in the sense of trying to prove them wrong, but just to know what the hell was going on. And I became a lot more serious in my approach. I just became pretty conservative pretty damn quickly. It was not something that I was really brought up with. I was brought up to be independent. I was a lot more comfortable in the Republican Party as a result of that. One thing that's interesting about GW College Republicans is that we believe in free speech. And there's not a single person in that organization that 100% agrees with another person. Not because they think that they're stupid, just because they think that they have a different point of view. And I really value that diversity of opinion. And that is simply just not valued on the other side of the aisle. So I'm a pretty common sense, practical, practical guy, but I tend to find myself, myself aligning with tradition more and more and more. Jack, I'm so glad you said that because we literally talked and I think it was last week's episode about how a lot of the left is like, well, if you don't think exactly like I do, you're a bad person and I got to block you and I can't be around you or else that makes me a racist, bigot, homophobe, every word you can think of. Whereas I know a lot of conservatives who can like who can like comfortably agree to disagree because that's the fundamentals of democracy to be able to comfortably, you know, agree to disagree. And I think that, like you said, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think as long as we keep that at the center of any discussion or debate that we have, the fact that we have the ability to disagree is something that I think we take for granted here a lot in the West. Yeah, I completely agree because you go to any other country and they revere the United States. They may joke about them. They may like think that, oh, freaking Americans can't stand them. But they also have a ton of reverence for our practices in the U.S., it really is an embodiment of who America is. 
And I don't think we pay attention to that enough. And it, it really is frustrating how immature and quite bizarre how people are so willing to call you names that are historically very offensive. You know, calling someone a racist is not just a light thing, something you, could, you should just be throwing out or calling someone a bigot or, you know, something that's historically really offensive that immediately makes you shut down because you don't want to be known as a racist. But over time, I have found that the more often you get called that, the more <laughs> the more right you actually are. Yeah, it just means you won the argument. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly. what you got called. So you yeah. Keep pushing. I mean, that's where now they're hurt. You got to keep going. Yeah. So what are the policies on the left that turn you off when it comes to climate change? I'm like, again, like how much time do you have? Like, <laughs> I was about to say all of them. <laughs> I have always paid for my own gas, paid for my car, car insurance. Like I was, I'm very proud of that. It taught me a lot of discipline. <laughs> I remember seeing the prices in gas go up and thinking, wait, what? Like, like, why is this happening? Like anyone who starts paying for that will start to ask themselves. And people will say, oh, you can't blame the Biden administration for it. That's just what happens. You know, more people are driving now post-pandemic. And okay, there's always a little bit of truth. This is the frustrating part with the liberals because there's always a little bit of truth to what they say. And they take, you give them an inch and they take a damn mile. And it's so frustrating because they will, they will bunker down on that every time. But beyond that, you actually can blame the Biden administration. It's so frustrating. And you look at their energy policy. They have declared federal moratoriums on oil and gas leases. Then they, then they changed it because they changed their mind, and which no one wants to go on that land now because they don't want it revoked. They have locked up millions of leases out west in Colorado and Wyoming. They have increased the bond market 20-fold, which is not a sustainable business practice for any oil and gas company or any energy company in general. They revoked the Anwar leases and the permits to drill there. They increase the royalty rates. I mean, they are pricing and regulating the oil and gas companies out of business. And if you want to change the energy sector, you have to work with it. And I think that's something that we saw really represented in the, in the Trump administration, where he let the forces of, mar- of the market and innovation really do their thing. I mean, you saw, you saw carbon emissions decrease by 3% from 2018 to 2019. From 2017 to 2019, they decreased by 7%. I mean, th- these are pretty remarkable numbers for people who did not move forward with any new taxes or any new crazy regulation. And as a matter of fact, they slashed these regulations because all of these regulations tighten and really button up the energy organizations, the energy companies, so they can't actually innovate. So they can't find new solutions that the Democrats are constantly demanding that they find. So it really doesn't, it's such complete incompetence on that side. You know, if you reverse these policies, you can actually change a lot and you can keep us on the path towards lowering carbon emissions, doing leading on climate change. Unfortunately, even if we were to cut our emissions to zero, you know, it's really only going to have so much of an impact. Actually, it'll probably have a negligible impact as concluded by various independent sources. We have India and China to worry about. And but we need to lead the, and the market will follow. The market may be different in China and India, but they will face pressures and that will ultimately force them to do something about it. So, Jack, I this is always the question that I love asking to conservatives, because for me, this feels like the perfect marriage of old school environmentalism and justice and sound financial conservative decisions. And the reason that I bring this up is because you 
said two of my favorite words, China and India, which you hear get bounced around a lot for conservatives as soon as you talk environment. And that's a carbon price. You might be familiar with a carbon price, roughly so, essentially that folks who create a certain amount of carbon are punished for having made the carbon that they have. It, it creates, it paves the way for CBAMs, which allow us to put financial levers on other countries, which are blatantly disobeying that boundary that we've set, that cap, if you will. And it's a great financial lever for punishing countries that do the wrong thing while also making sure that, you know, we're, we're holding ourselves accountable to a degree. What are some of your thoughts on a lot of these more economic levers that have the environment in mind. Then I say things like a carbon price because for me that really is a free market mechanism of okay, if you obey the law and you're not, you know, throwing your car batteries in the ocean as a company, you get to play ball and you get to come to the ballpark. What are some of your thoughts on policies like that? On a lot of these carbon policies, I find myself really disagreeing with most of them. Particularly carbon pricing. Well, carbon pricing is a little bit different because it's always kind of been done since the 90s. I think it was started by the Clinton administration. And administrations have always toyed with how much are we going to raise the discount rate or how much are we going to lower it? And if we are changing the discount rate, is it going to be based on just the United States or is it going to be based on everybody else? And if so, are we responsible for everybody else as well? I mean, that's kind of a tough lever to put your finger on. In that regard, I'm always pretty hesitant to, to support something like that. I'm not for the carbon fee and dividend approach. I've heard a lot of great things about it. And Switzerland and Canada have tried it. Switzerland was not revenue neutral. They took a third of it and put it towards an energy initiative. But Switzerland knows how to spend their money well. <laughs> the United States has not been good at spending money. Typically, if you have $10 million for something, it's going to end up with $3.7 million by the time the money finally gets there. We've never really seen that money actually end up in the pockets of the consumers across the board. Canada tried it, and it differs in British Columbia versus York. And even in Switzerland, it didn't really go to the consumer. It went to their health insurance bill, which you, know, you can make an argument that that's appropriate. But at the end of the day, if I'm a healthy person, most people in Switzerland are, they don't notice that. They, very could have, they would have probably preferred to use that dividend towards any other type of expenditure, any other raising costs that the carbon taxes ultimately do create. And that probably suggests why only 15% of the Swiss people recognize that there was a change in policy. We can't just say, you know, we're done with fossil fuels and we, we're going to tax the hell out of it. That resembles what we're already seeing. It's going to skyrocket prices. It's going to increase gas prices. I apologize for the siren mm -hmm. probably here in the background. It's going to increase gas prices food prices, electricity prices, and there is a dividend or a rebate. It's kind of been called various things in the past. That is not going to compensate for all of the other increases in prices that you're going to see across the board. So I'm not for that. When people say, what do you do? I say we have to lead by example. We have to lead strong. And people say it's a cop-out. I really don't think it is. I think we were leading very strongly. We were energy independent for the first time. We were a net exporter of energy. No one thought that could happen. You know, that is, a, and we had really low, we had the lowest levels of carbon emissions. We had the cleanest air, the cleanest water that we had ever had. These are all great things. And the Trump administration led by example on these things. And I think we should continue doing things of that regard instead of trying to tax away out of it. It will decrease carbon emissions. It's, that's true. If you tax something, you will get less of it. But 
it will have a negligible result on the economy, which has been indicated by the forecasts shown through the U.S. Energy Information Administration's model on energy. So I do want to push back a little bit and maybe in some of this, you know, right now we've got the disadvantage of a lot of this being in a hypothetical bubble because none of these things have been around long enough to be able to predict, you know, what that trend would look like. I don't know that any of these trends accounted for a major recession <laughs> right after a recession in 2008, et cetera. But Canada, it seemed a lot of their, their and they call it a carbon tax, carbon price, carbon fee and dividend. It seems like they've got 10,000 names for the same thing. It looks like that household rebate did start getting distributed to, let me pull up the number here, 77% of that population as of last year. So they actually got a check from the government that was like, hey, here is your carbon price rebate. But the other side of that is that, okay, well, now if they start doing trade and it looks like the EU is moving towards a carbon price, if I recall reading that correctly, or some variant of a carbon price, they can now use that as leverage against us. Anytime we go to trade, if we're not meeting a certain rate that they've decided because we're not electing essentially into that carbon pricing system. I, I did want to ask you, Jack, because this has always been a real big point for me as somebody who's fiscally conservative. And, and I know that if you're bringing up China and India, it's probably something that you're concerned about as well. You know, getting railroaded by another country who just kind of says, hey, here are our numbers. Ha ha. If you don't like it, pay the toll. Do you have concerns, you know, as we continue to trade internationally with these countries that are adopting carbon pricing and similar mechanisms, and we continue to opt out of us being penalized in a trade system? I guess at one point, as at what point as a conservative, do you go ahead and say, who, who cares if climate change is real or not? If we get an economic advantage at home, fine, whatever, it's real. Because that's always been my policy. I'm no scientist. I'm not going to pretend to be. But if there are jobs to be made and and taxes to be cut, and financial incentives to be had, I, I'm probably going to go with that. What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. For me, and I think it's kind of alluded to, I think you kind of alluded to the same thing, is that you know, I'm America first at the end of the day. Now, does that mean we should get, you know, we should just give the middle finger to the rest of the world? No. <laughs> but when you mentioned other countries and the border adjustment tax, that you know, that would be enormously complex. I mean, you would have to really do an entire tax scrutinizing policy review of the specific policies at issue. It would require more of it require the administrative straight the well, excuse me, the administrative state to be making decisions not really based on what's good for the economy or the environment, but what's good for tax policy. And as a conservative, that's really something I want to stay away from. So I don't love that idea. But I, I do think it's important for us to be aligned with the rest of the world on these things. Uh, as particularly our European allies, you see what France has done. And it is, Paris may be dirty, but like the rest of the country is beautiful. I mean, they are huge in conservation. No one tries them on that. And they have some of the cleanest drinking water in the world. They are the pioneers of nuclear energy, which, you know, if you really care about the environment, I think nuclear energy is like one of the best solutions presented. We do have to learn from the rest of the world. I think sometimes when we're so America first, we come to the conclusion of, well, no one can do it better than us. Like, we're the best. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that. However, France was here before us, <laughs> just so we know. Like, it, other countries have been trying things and they've been trying them successfully. You know, other countries are of different scale and size. So it's always going to be different. But I think we should definitely take the lessons from the rest of the world and see how we can exhibit those here in the U.S. That's fabulous. And Jack, you know, I've looked a little bit at some of your experiences on the Hill. 
Um, you've got a really impressive resume in D.C. And I'm sure you've seen this firsthand. I think 10 years ago, a lot of conservatives thought, you know, climate change, things like that. It's just a fad. It's a buzzword. It's a leftist excuse to tax people. It'll go away. Well, then it didn't go away. If anything, people became even more concerned about it. So we went from conservatives ignoring the problem to a lot of folks telling conservatives, you've got to become part of the solution. And I know that anytime I've lobbied my members of Congress within the last few years, I've told them, hey, you know, we know this is not going away. I would rather you be at the table helping create legislation instead of just handing us another Green New Deal every year and me rolling my eyes and crying because I know that they're going to make me pay for it. So what are what are some of your thoughts on, you know, if conservatives need to come to the table to be a part of the solution, what does that look like from a conservative perspective? How does how does making your voice heard and being part of the solution, what does that look like for conservatives? I think you need to change the whole strategy. I mean, of how you get people to hear what you're saying, because right now people are left to their wits. And I'm not saying that that's a completely bad thing. I mean, we want people to be thinking independently. But what we don't want is for people to be completely left in the dark. And we're, we're kind of seeing that across the country. People are kind of saying, well, the climate does kind of always change, <laughs> which is there is some truth to that. But like we we want to give them the evidence. We want to give them their talking points so they can respond, because if they don't, they they have lives, they have families, they have jobs. They are going to fall to the pressure of the climate lobby, the environmental lobby. And that sucks for us. And it sucks for, for them, too. We need to combat that by changing our strategy. We need to tell everybody, I mean, every single person. I mean, I I don't understand why the Republicans don't do this more. Whenever they have a climate change person, a a pro-climate change person on the other side, they never have a Republican there talking about their strategy. Get someone on there. Get someone who's done their homework. Get someone there who knows what they're talking about. Who Who can say, listen, this is what Joe Biden's trying to do on the environment. It's not working. It's actually hurting you. This is what we can do to retain what we have. This conversation is an example that a lot of conservative views regarding the environment and climate might run the gamut, but a lot of them are based in sound financial decision. And I don't know that that's the case on the left. I mean, you might not be as staunch of a believer in climate change as I am. You you strike me as more of the conservation and environmental hook and bullet, I think is what they call it, especially in a lot of a lot of right groups. I, I think that a lot of it on the left is let's just fix the environment and whatever the cost is, that's the cost. Where I think that a lot of groups on the right are, let's be financially sound. And if we can save as much as possible within financial means, great. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great reflection about what conservative progress is. Conservatism is progress going the speed limit. We're not going to just go 100 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone and deal with whatever problems result from that. We, we believe in being smart. We believe in taking our time. I'm not saying to go slow, but I'm saying to just be practical in our assessments. I mean, for me, based on how I grew up, you, if, if you're not practical, you know, people like me, the people I grew up with, we get hurt first. I'm not willing to say, oh, well, it's a little bit hotter out. So we all have to pay the price. Right. <laughs> well, all the elites the tax, yeah. like, don't have to worry about it. For, for me, yeah, I, I think I definitely do approach it a little bit more of a fi- in a financial way, you know, finance major. <laughs> Some of the stereotypes are, are, are there, but most of the work I've done is really analyzing what is going on from a policy standpoint and what are those impacts. And on climate change, like I, I completely agree, like it is a real thing. Like I will 
I will fight people who say that. No, I won't fight people, but like, I'll, I'll challenge okay. people. We, we welcome fighting here. That's it's what this is all about, right? Yeah, we've, we've practiced the jiu-jitsu regularly to prepare to fight ourselves. Yeah, you've got our endorsement to fight people. Yeah. <laughs> you have to state the truth. And now, is it a crisis? Is it an existential threat? Now, that, that's a situation. But I, I think we need to acknowledge that it's a thing, but we also need to acknowledge what we do about it. And we need to validate that because if we just say, oh, yeah, it's a thing. And then we don't say anything. I mean, if we win political brownie points with CNN or MSNBC for saying, yeah, I'm brave. Uh, you know, climate change is real. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Like, you're, <laughs> like, thank you, Sherlock. Like, it's a real thing. But what are you going to do about it? Tell me what makes you better. Tell me how your policies are going to change anything. If you ask most liberals, they would be shocked to know that our carbon emissions were the lowest level during the Trump administration. I think they'd be shocked to find out that they got, I don't, actually not right now, but at, when Trump left office, we had reached the cleanest air and the cleanest waters. That's incredible. We, have, we had lowered our carbon emissions. That's in the most, in modern history, going back like 50 years. That's something to be proud of. What liberal hears that? What liberal here is that, yes, we're energy independent and we also have decreased our carbon emissions. That's something we need to communicate, but we're not communicating that at all. And I think that that, that might be a great argument for the power of a financial lever in making all of this happen, no matter what that looks like, at least using more conservative financial prowess when it comes to tackling some of these issues. Because I'll be completely honest with you. I don't think President Trump was sitting in the White House going, God, we got to do something about climate change. I really don't think those words ever left his mouth. I think that it was very much from the angle of how do we use the free market and innovation to make things better? If we take that perspective and apply it within an environmentalist lens and just have conservatives own being environmentalists and own being financially savvy, you know, like, like, like for real, especially as motivated young people. And I think that a lot of what I'm hearing from you is that young conservatives need to be able to take that conversation piece back. So many young conservatives get overwhelmed because they are like the one conservative person on their campus. And when you got 30 people yelling at you, calling you a bigot, this and that, it's hard to have a conversation with people yeah. like that. The amount of times I have said something that is not only accurate, but <laughs> openly obvious. And you just feel the daggers <laughs> point on you. <laughs> and it's always the same type of person. Like, it's almost like I walk into a party and I'm like, oh, shoot, like, this is going to be They're here, yeah. I, I can see them. Like, I'm like, this is going to be great for me. Like, just from the way they act, the way they communicate. Look, I'm not here to play judge and jury. But when it comes to policies that affect us all financially, not to mention affect the planet, I think we all need to have a stake in it. I really do. And I think what we've seen in the market, like ESG sports these corporate indexes that have really told the ExxonMobil's of the world, listen, like you kind of got to pay attention. And Chevron and ExxonMobil have really actually done a lot of that. They've actually have reduced their carbon emissions. They've made their operations greener. And that's a great thing. I mean, that's a great thing to have our major energy companies do that. That will never be enough. Conservatives could also say, I mean, if the Trump administration slashed their carbon emissions to zero, you know, it, it still wouldn't be enough for the left. Right. So you they wouldn't want to. They, they would not be okay, comfortable, like comfortably okay, crediting somebody on the right with having a success like that. Jack, before we get before we lose you, I have one more question. I wonder what your opinion is on the uh, industrial policy that Biden's been implementing 
like try and bring back manufacturing from China, mainly through like subsidies for solar panels and batteries to like sort of spark the industry and take back market share. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. Does Biden probably understand it in his heart of hearts? Probably. I really want to put it past him. Is he going to do anything about it? I doubt it. The, I mean, his administration is filled with past Obama administration officials. Under Obama, we lost 200,000 manufacturing jobs. Under Trump, we gained half a million manufacturing jobs. So it might be the inverse. But I know under Trump, we gained them. And under Obama, we lost them. So I'm not really willing to place bets on whether or not the Biden administration is really going to bring manufacturing jobs back. I would love it. I would root for it. I would be so happy if that could happen. But given how their policies, their economic policies have really hurt manufacturing America, I'm not really willing to believe it. Also, a lot of these policies, like these tax cuts for the solar panels, the weather-dependent energy resources, you know, no one can afford those. I mean, those are so ungodly expensive. Also, they require, in, in order to really manufacture them, you have to have those minerals. And we do not have prevalent levels of lithium, for example, in this country. The DRC has cobalt, China has lithium, and they can own that market, which hurts us as it relates to energy securities. I don't really know how that would work out from a mining standpoint. Also, on a political standpoint, I think it might very well just be all talk. We actually did recently find one of the largest uh, deposits of lithium in the US not too long ago, and they're trying to get the right to, to mine it. But there's a little snail that might cause a little little trouble, as usual, in environmental issues. <laughs> well, and they just found a huge deposit here in Arkansas, too. So now you've got a lot of people who are like, well, I'm an environmentalist and I care about the environment, and they plan on making electric vehicle batteries with this lithium. But am I okay with them absolutely hacking up the earth right in my backyard to get an electric vehicle in the rural state of Arkansas, where I wouldn't be able to plug it in anywhere? Like, 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 it, <laughs> like where, like, what is the, what is the exchange on that? I'm not going to take it to whole hay or anything. So what? what There's what never a purest way for environmentalism. You're always hurting someone or something. And, and I don't know about Arkansas, but Nevada, they have a lot of federal land. I did not know about that story or, or about lithium in Nevada. I mean, that's phenomenal. That's great. But will it actually be allowed to be mined? I, <laughs> I highly doubt it. It would make sense from a logical standpoint. But, you know, that's kind of in short supply on the other side, especially when you had the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, who does not let you mine. I mean, they've revoked a ton of permits, a ton of leases. They've, they've locked up a ton of acreage or acreage, thing after thing after thing that they do that hurts us from an energy standpoint. We have all these minerals. We, have, we are blessed with natural resources in the United States. And that would, you know, buttress the argument from the left. But they don't want to do that either, which makes you wonder, what is their end goal? And I honestly, I, I'm glad I, I can't answer that. I really can't. You, you know, and that's what makes me laugh because folks on the left are always like, I can't believe Biden didn't do something blatantly good for the environment. And I'm like, oh, man, you mean the guy who's been in office since 1972 and didn't have much of an environmental resume, didn't decide to do something this week on the environment? Man, that's crazy. That's nuts. Man, <laughs> that's a shocker. Like, how about we get new people in office? People haven't been there for double the length, triple the length that I've been alive. There's an yeah. idea. So, Jack, thank you so much for taking your time to spend with us at the Green Tea Party to sip some tea with us. So, everyone, once again, this is Jack Fisher. He's a student at George Washington University, and he is part of the College Republicans at his university. So, you could you can probably find him on Twitter, LinkedIn. Where, where is your social media, Jack? 
LinkedIn is fine. If you type in Jack Fisher, George Washington University, or G- yeah, if you look, type in Jack Fisher GW, you'll find me there. I'm always happy to connect and you know, yeah, share experiences and my opinions on something. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I've never done one of these before. Well, you did great. Thank you. We loved having you on here and we really appreciate you. For our listeners, go ahead and give Jack Fisher a follow on LinkedIn. And if you want to stay connected with him, find him on there. And if you want to email us with your thoughts at info at greenteapartyradio.com. And here's your action step. So I have a book suggestion for you. There's a book called The Conservative Environmentalist, Common Sense Solutions for a Sustainable Future. It's by Benji Backer. Please go ahead and purchase the book and get more engaged with conservative environmentalism. Thank you for listening to Green Tea Party Radio and a very special thank you to all of our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. If you're interested in getting early access to episodes as well as Green Tea Party Radio merch, check us out at greenteapartyradio.com. And just so you know, this is our passion project. We don't have any organizational sponsor and we're building a movement because we want the world to know that conservatives have important things to say about climate change. And if you want to hear our show on your college radio station, email us at info at greenteapartyradio.com and give us the details about your campus and your radio station. Thanks for listening, guys. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Everyone, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you so yeah, much again thank for you, being Jack. on the show. I appreciate the invitation. I had a great time. I'll make sure that GWCRs will promote it on social media. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. I'm sorry if I slipped up my words. <laughs> I've never done this before, but it was... You did great. I've slipped up on so many things on this radio show, so you are totally fine. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Have a good one. And again, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Hi, I'm Drew Irely. I am the conservative outreach director for Citizens Climate Lobby. My path to being a conservative, uh, concerned about climate action, was definitely a long one. Growing up, it's a very rural area. You had to be into the outdoors or you were gonna be bored out of your mind. So I grew up doing a lot of hunting, fishing. I was the only the, the second person on my mom's side to graduate high school. I graduated June 6th, 05, at like 7.30 at night. And by eight o'clock the next morning, I was on my way to basic training on my 17th birthday. <laughs> had deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, rotations through Cuba. It was during this time that I really became concerned with energy infrastructure, but I wasn't ready to take action yet. It took the birth of a 10 pound baby girl with cheeks so big she couldn't open her eyes to really get me to open mine. My life just went from the next 50 years to the next 75. What if she's the veteran that follows in my footsteps and she's in the VA suffering from exposure? You know, what if she's on a fossil fuel route and, you know, subject to an IED? How will I be able to look at her in the eye and say, I knew that this could be an issue that you would have to face and I chose to do nothing about it. It's why we fight wars. You know, we fight them now so our kids don't have to. I am fighting climate change now so my daughters don't have to. A lot of people, you know, they say conservatives don't care about climate change and, you know, it's not true at all. We just want sensible policies that don't destroy the economy in trying to find a solution. We have that here at Citizens Climate Lobby.
There are a lot of leadership opportunities for conservatives, especially in red states and districts with Republican congressional offices. Conservatives can also join CCL's Conservative Caucus. It's a national group of Republicans and other right-of-center individuals where conservatives can get together and regularly meet online and have strictly conservative-based conversations. Sharing our personal story is how we make a difference. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's Eco Right Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an Eco Right leader bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Eco Right Speaks.